You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. How's it going, Jay? It's going great. So in my hands, I hold a psychoanalysis of Andrew Henry. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, that sounds well, more wait. dangerous than it actually is. It's a personality and work style assessment. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I was yeah, just going to yeah, ask, yeah. what's in your hands? I, I was about to lie down on the couch and be like, all right, tell me more. Um, <laughs> I've got a copy uh, of Jay's assessment results as well. We both went through Patrick Lencioni's Six Types of Working Genius assessment this week. We'd both read the book and had been discussing it a little bit. And we're actually curious once you go through the questionnaire, what we actually mapped out as. And we're not the same. We probably could have each said that ahead of time, but we had some similarities and some pretty strong differences. So Jay, you want to explain what those six categories are? Yeah, there are six categories of working genius, according to Patrick Lencioni. They are wonder, discernment, enablement, invention, galvanizing, and tenacity. And I'll define these right now. So wonder identifies the need for improvement or change. Invention confirms the importance of that need and generates an idea or solution. Discernment assesses the merit and workability of the idea or solution. See how these are being built on. Then galvanizing generates enthusiasm and action around the idea or solution. Enablement initiates support and assists in the implementation of the idea or solution. And tenacity commits to ensuring that the idea or solution gets completed and that desired results are achieved. There they are. If the six categories are, Lencioni breaks them down into three groups. He calls basically two of them are going to be your geniuses. Most people are strong in two of these areas and they find those areas rewarding, energizing to work in. They get joy and fulfillment from them. And so you can fill up your own tank by working in the areas that are naturally aligned. Then you have what he calls competencies, which are the areas that you can be competent, passable at, you can do the job, but you don't find it deeply rewarding. And over time, it slowly empties your gas tank. And then the last two, whatever the particular two are for each individual person, those are their frustrations. And working in those areas, it's hard to do the work. The work is unsatisfying. It's very draining. It drives you into burnout. And recognizing that different jobs and different people that make up a team will have significantly different geniuses, competencies, and frustrations means that oftentimes you can find yourself feeling burnt out because you're doing completely the wrong work when somebody else in your org might actually be much better suited to that work and find it fulfilling and energizing to do, which is you know, where I accountants wish, come from. Yes, exactly. It, but I wish I had this, I was going to say like five, 10 years ago, I think back in high school, even junior high, if we want to go back, because I'll just jump ahead. Two things that are my working frustrations are enablement and galvanizing. And I think that I generate enablement and galvanizing more effectively through our YouTube channel. But internally, I just don't have the patience, the drive. I don't want to be a cheerleader in my company which sounds like is incredibly detrimental, but it's because I'd much rather focus on my working geniuses. And one thing, I don't know, I'll ask this 
question of you, but one thing that caught me off guard was that one of my working competencies is tenacity, which I thought would have been dead last. But one of my guys that saw this said, Jay, how long were you a solopreneur? Well, close to a decade. And he said, well, that's tenacity right there. And so these days, I don't think I could spend an hour in front of a machine. I would probably go crazy doing that. But certainly I've had to do that. So it's developed into a working competency. Andrew, did anything catch you off guard? So interestingly, you and I had exactly the same frustrations. Both of us, our frustrations were galvanizing and enablement. And I do not like being a motivator in chief in my company. And it's partly because that's just not really my personality. Getting hyped about stuff is not really how I work. I like to put my head down and just dig into a project and really get into the details of it and start chugging through it. But it was interesting to me. The concept that I found most interesting as I was reading the book is the wonder part. And I have some friends, as soon as Lindsay and I started writing about that category, as a person who asked these questions of like, why do we do it this way? Could this be done a better way? What if we did this differently? And those are often fairly abstract. He likens it to an airplane flying at altitude. Those are 30,000 foot questions. Mm-hmm. Like you can see the terrain below you, but you can't pick out individual plots of land, individual houses. It's just all down there. And you're up in the clouds going, well, why are we doing this? I don't spend a lot of time there. And I think of myself as somewhat entrepreneurial, at least in my overall personality and my ability to see solutions in the world. Mm -hmm. But I don't spend a lot of time in that wonder space asking very big picture, open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. And And realizing that if you don't ask those questions first or have somebody on your team who does ask those questions or have a business partner or a friend or somebody you talk to who's asking those questions, that the next step where I really like to get into inventing solutions, it will be inventing solutions to the wrong questions if you haven't really chewed on those big picture things. So it was interesting to me to see that I didn't quite line up with the beginning of the ideation cycle as much as the middle section of implementation. You know what, looking back, so my two working competencies to review, those are the two middle things that you tolerate. Yep. The, the description they say, you're capable of and don't mind pondering the possibility of these things. For Tenacity, you're capable of and don't mind pushing projects. Those were two things, wonder and tenacity. Those are my two working competencies. Those were things that just needed to exist. If there was no first step of wonder, Pearson Workholding would not exist because I would be standing in front of a machine, my model year 2000 Haas Mini Mill, working with great tenacity going, why the heck do people make one part at a time in one machine and there's one man? This is crazy. Why is there not, like the analogy I always say publicly is, Bakers don't bake cupcakes one at a time. They put a tray in. Where the heck are the baking trays in this industry? And had that wonder not have existed, I would not have, I guess, graduated into invention, like inventing the pallet system or a vacuum system or a rotovice, that thing. But now those two have kind of taken a back seat. And now my first top two working geniuses are invention and discernment. So now, which I have said publicly, I try and actively hate on some of my designs. Okay, here's a problem. 
I'm going to invent something in Fusion, and then I, it sits for three, six months, sometimes several years as I discern, is this really going to solve problems? Is this the best product it can be? Who would buy this? What's the price point? So yep. yeah, I do think that these results ebb and flow over time as you enter new responsibilities in your company. My working competencies were wonder and discernment, and I see those as two sides of the same coin. The way Lencioni describes them, wonder is asking the big picture questions, and then discernment is really about evaluating proposed solutions more based on intuition and gut than on lots and lots of number crunching and data and saying, yeah, I think that idea will work or no, that idea is not going to work or here's what's good about that. Here's what's bad about it. I, my working geniuses are tenacity and invention. I mm. really enjoy coming up with, especially with concrete solutions to specific solvable problems. I don't mm -hmm. spend a lot of time wondering if the world could be completely different than it is because I'm not going to take it there. <laughs> I have a very, I have a short life in a small place in history and I'm going to do some things, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking like, what if the world were completely different than it is? That's mm -hmm. just, to me, that's not practical. It's important in some sense. Yeah. But I, it's not where I naturally gravitate ever. It explains why you as a father of five will g still go into the shop on a Saturday morning to just get stuff done. That is tenacity. That my tenacity left the building a while ago. <laughs> when you write us something like that. Yeah. No, that see that explains stuff. And instead of having to excuse the way you are, the point of this book is that you embrace the things that you are. And that's a huge thing. That's why I wish I would have known some of these concepts back in high school and junior high when I was labeled a bad student because I hated doing the homework because I, I'm not a tenacious homework person. And yep. I would just ace the test and it would average out to a C grade and I would stay eligible for varsity baseball. I and gained just the never system. turn in homework. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> never amazing. do homework. You ace I mean, the test, you get a, a B or C on the reports, and then you play ball. For less work-related, more general tests like the big five personality tests, I score extremely high in conscientiousness. Mm. I have a very, very hard time leaving anything undone. Mm. And so I'm not sure if I ever failed to turn in a homework assignment in high school. Yeah. Like I compulsively finished everything. I fell asleep on my books all the time at night because <laughs> I was just still grinding away, trying to make sure everything was done. And that's yeah. not a good way to live either. I let the system game me. Mm. And there were a lot of costs to that that are not good. And weirdly, as a father, my parents were not super uptight about my academics. They wanted me to work hard. They wanted me to get good grades, but they were not standing over my shoulder as taskmasters by the time I got mm. to high school. And for my kids who are all in elementary or middle school right now, I'm actually pretty chill about grades. Mm -hmm. I don't want to let my personality and my work habits drive how they exist in school. It's wise. Yeah, it's good. And what happens is at, from a parenting standpoint, that creates a closer bond between you and your children or me and my boys so that when they do screw up in life, they can come to you instead of like you barking at them. Like, oh, you should have done this. I told you to work harder or do this, this, and that. Yeah. Andrew, you're also highly educated because you were a teacher, right? So you went I was, although I was a teacher at a private school, so I did not have to go through teacher certification. I got sort of a 
pretty well-rounded general liberal arts education in college. I went to IU and got degrees in music performance and instrument building. Mm -hmm. And then I had gone to a pretty rigorous Jesuit high school in New York. So I had a solid education. I didn't ever finish a master's degree. And teaching, I really loved teaching history mm. because history is endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, but absolutely. I wasn't intending to be a career teacher when I went to college. That wasn't really on my radar. Why did you go into it anymore currently? Yeah. I went into it because I needed a job and I got asked to help start a school. Wow. And there was a small school startup starting in my town. I knew the other families that were involved. I was sort of between jobs. I was working at the university part-time. I had been working in custom furniture, but that market was really, really tight in 2008, 2009, building high-end custom furniture in the Midwest. If you're doing really high-end stuff and you're on the East Coast or the West Coast, there's a lot more people who collect art furniture out there than there are in the heartland. Mm -hmm. And so that business that I was working for had taken a pretty steep dive during the big recession, housing market collapse. And so I was looking for something else to do and I got asked to teach elementary. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, you can you have to teach math, teach writing, teach grammar. And oh, you have to teach Latin. Have you ever taken Latin? And I'm like, no. <laughs> they're like, great. You've got three months. School starts in August. You got three months to learn enough Latin to teach third, fourth, and fifth grade Latin. And I was like, okay. So I sat down and I just bombed my way through elementary and middle school Latin textbooks all summer until I could decline nouns and conjugate verbs and understand basic grammar and teach elementary Latin. Wow. It was kind of, it was kind of loony and it was fun, but I don't particularly miss that part of that job. So is this known as classical conversations style of teaching? It's similar. The school that I helped found is called Cedars Christian School. It's in Bloomington, uh -huh. Indiana, and it is a university model or a hybrid model school. So the kids are in class three days a week and at home two days a week. It's mm -hmm. a little different from classical conversations, although there is some overlap in terms of the kinds of history and liberal arts and Western culture topics that are focused on in the elementary grades, mm -hmm. but it's not organized around any kind of classical conversations curriculum. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cause we homeschool. And one of the things we looked into is the classical approach, which is let's see grammar, there's rhetoric and logic. You teach the foundations and then you teach how to think, and then you teach how to communicate it. The trivium. And then the quadrivium is usually what you'd see in middle school, high school, and we'll have more of your arithmetic geometry and the harder mm. sciences where basically you're trying to teach younger kids to read, write, and think, and then older kids to synthesize, use critical thinking, and be able to take a bunch of things and go across disciplines with them. Yeah. I am so for teaching students, teaching children how to think critically. The world would look radically different if people would rub more brain cells together. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. So anything that's pro-critical thinking, I'm behind it. I'm in favor as well. Yeah. So back to Lencioni, what else yeah. did you find that was valuable to you in that book? Okay. So this may be for a future podcast, but I am going between two different books. That's obviously the six working geniuses, but also a book by Gina Wickman called Rocket Fuel. Rocket Fuel talks about the relationship between the visionary and the integrator, which is like in my company, it would be the CEO and then the president, which shelters everyone else from the CEO with the mad scientist approach. And then 
the integrator needs to take that mad science experiment and then put it into an actual value stream. So what I'm trying to map is these working geniuses, like an integrator needs to have tenacity. I think they need to have enablement or the ability to galvanize a team. Those are two things, really three things that are at the bottom of my list. So I feel like this coupled with rocket fuel with the rocket fuel book is really going to create like a massive ripple effect through my company as we kind of restructure and get myself out of the way. Cause right now I am the bottleneck in the company as far as just anything new. And we have people that can create new stuff, but I don't enable them. I don't galvanize them to do that. So I really, I'm baffled by that. I'm not a bottleneck in anything creating new stuff in my company. That's Mm. not me at all. No, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I yeah, just, it's uh, terrible being like the knot hole that every idea has to get pulled through before oh, it can actually go out to the terrible. floor and come to any kind of fruition. Yeah. So there's this show that I used to binge on called The Profit, P-R-O-F-I-T. Okay. It's on CNBC. It's a guy named Marcus Limonis. It's hard. To, you, you have to buy the episodes these days, I think, um, or at least the early seasons. But he would go into these companies and it would be the rinse, repeat type of approach to reality TV is the owner would always be the problem in the struggling company, whether it's ego pride, which is ego's nasty, ugly twin brother control, maybe technical proficiency that they don't want to give up, which is also control or some other like glaring personality flaw. And yeah, those make for great television, but they make for horrible working environments. So it's just good to bring all that stuff to the surface. That's how I would wrap up with this entire section of going through these things that they say, like later on in the report, it talks to you about your unique pairing. So it calls me the discriminating ideator, which I get it. Yep. I own that. Didn't really need to take a test, but it confirms that. And that's confirms that I should just stay there. That makes sense. Are you going to have everybody else in your org read these books? I don't think I'll have them do the reading. I think there's enough content in the YouTube ecosystem. And I think the website is workinggenius.com on that where Patrick Lencioni has enough sit down interviews to talk about it. So we'll do that during a lunch and learn or a morning meeting or an executive meeting. But I immediately bought 10 tests okay. to give to the various people in my company. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And you could have them maybe read the last 20 pages of the book and get like exactly. 98% of the content. Yes. <laughs> or ideally, if he's done a TED talk, bingo, there's no yep. reading required. So yeah. What about you? Do you see any action you're going to take from it? So there are a few things for me. The first one is we've had a lot of changes in our company this spring. We've taken on some new kinds of work doing pick, pack, and ship and a few other things that we did some of before, but we're doing a lot more of them now. And so the overall center of gravity of the company has shifted quite a bit. And I'm finding that we had to add some more employees to do that. And I've been getting closer to being burned out on trying to motivate and encourage people, the galvanizing and enablement that are my working frustrations. Right. And recognizing that finding somebody to do that or me specifically delegating that to somebody else in my company who's better at it and gets fulfilled by it is probably the single shortest path that I have right now to taking stuff off my plate that's disproportionately taxing to me and bums me out at work. Because Mm. I love sitting down 
and diving into CAD for hours and working on something. Now, if I did nothing but that, I would go crazy. Mm -hmm. But that's the part that I'm hungry for right now that I'm not getting enough of because I'm having to spend a lot of time doing other stuff. Yeah. And I'm also in the process of firing myself from customer service almost mm. completely. There are still certain things that are always going to have to escalate to the owner of a company in a company as small as mine, mm. because I don't want, there are certain things that they're my responsibility. When it comes to dealing with a customer who's behaving inappropriately, belligerently, somebody is going to get themselves fired as a customer. Yeah. It should not fall to any one of my employees to have to receive abuse, written abuse, abuse, verbal abuse from any of our customers that escalates to me immediately. And I handle firing that person. Yeah. Doesn't happen super often. And okay. I really believe in the company culture as a magnet, like it attracts certain things and it repels certain things. The number of times people email me and say, Hey, I'm looking for this or that holster for this, or this kind of gun. Do you make something? And we might make something that they could use, but based on their description of what they're trying to accomplish in their particular criteria, I will often refer them to other companies that I have no business connection to, just other companies that I know of in the same space that make something that I think better suits their needs. And so we are a deliberately non-grasping for sales Mm -hmm. kind of company. I am not trying to talk people in to using our product. We want to show them what we make and explain how it works and give them a glimpse of how our company thinks and operates. And if that aligns with what they want, great. Yeah. But I would rather not get the initial sale than get the sale, have the person frustrated and angry because they feel like I conned them mm-hmm. into buying our thing. And yeah. so we don't do any hard selling. We don't really pay for any advertising. And certainly I could have grown the company a lot faster and our top line revenue could be much, much higher if I were willing to change the company culture and go out there and just try to wrangle people into buying our stuff. Yeah. I don't do too much tech supporter sales these days. I'm kind of like level three tech support or that. I don't fire customers these days that often. We're on a two-year streak where we've had no irate customers. It's great. So usually there's one per year, which is, oh, I, I can't even get a word in edgewise. This person just needs to go. Yeah. This but, person's um, a maniac. Yeah. So, well, I've always thought 10% of society is just completely crazy. So <laughs> I don't, I think that number is a lot lower in manufacturing, dare I say, because hear me out. We deal with reality. When we talk about tolerance in manufacturing, it's plus or minus this said amount. It's not this blurry line. It's either right or wrong. It's inside or outside of tolerance. So we're used to working <laughs> How do you with feel facts? about that surface finish. I don't know. Get the profilometer. What does it say? What does that surface identify as to be exact? So, so for me, I enjoy talking to customers because I like helping people. That's a core personal principle of mine and being removed. The only people I would interact with is maybe some customers and, or friends or definitely employees or people that stop by for a tour or something like that. And I'm walking that line. I know that it, from a purely fiscal standpoint, it's not good for me to be on those types of calls because I could be inventing, but it's just something I want to do. So I feel like there's some type of working genius that is unlisted here of relationship that I don't want to overlook. 
these are just indicators, these types of things. And certainly there's like Myers-Briggs, there's Enneagram, there's, if you really want to get weird, there's, you know, like horoscopes, that type of thing. Um, <laughs> Let's not go that weird. No, we're not. We're not. But it's one of those things there, this should really be seen as just, it should affirm or discourage you from different tasks or different lanes you could jump onto. And darn it, if I want to answer phones for a week, then I'm just going to answer phones for a week and give someone well, a nice, break. Well, the nice thing is the book is obviously written for people in all different kinds of positions in all different sizes of organizations. And it has carryover to your home life, your family life, other relationships in your life. Everything is affected by this. As the owner of a company, you have a unique position in that if you want to change your job description, you can simply change it. Mm-hmm. If yep. you want to bring in somebody to take over a portion of what you normally do, you just bring them in. You don't need necessarily, and obviously this is true primarily of the small owner operator type business. If you are the CEO of a huge corporation, depending on what you're doing, you still might need the board of directors permission for certain things. But I don't have a board of directors. I don't have a business partner. I don't have a co-founder. I get to call the shots in my company. If we decide to do something and I sign off on it, we're doing it. That's both a real benefit, but also a real liability because my particular failures and weaknesses or the tendencies of how I work and think can end up creating a whole systemic risk for my company Mm -hmm. because certain kinds of problems are wavelengths of light that I don't see. And what was helpful to me is not that this is a comprehensive guide to how I should do my work. And there are There are lots of many more detailed breakdowns of how different kinds of work are most efficiently accomplished and understanding schedules and sleep cycles and all kinds of other stuff. But for me, the real key is which are my frustrations? Mm -hmm. Where am I currently making myself do those things? What is the shortest path for me handing those off to somebody else who can do them at far lower monetary cost, although as the owner of the company, my time is dollars to my company. I'm not indifferent to my time commitment, but who can do that work at a lower emotional and mental cost? Who will be able to do that and pay much less of a tax for doing it than I pay? Or Or that they thrive in it. Yeah. And realizing that there are certain people, and it when the tenacity one, when that came up as one of my geniuses, I immediately thought of a friend of mine, one of my best friends from college. He was one of my groomsmen. I think of him and go, wow, yeah, he's like a big idea guy and actually getting something all the way down the field and across the goal line always seems nearly impossible. Hmm. Yeah. By the time the idea is mostly formed, he's already bored and moved on to the next thing. And it's easy for a person with a lot of tenacity who's like, okay, I'm going to get done with this. I just got a new CPA recently at the very end of 22. And so we just did our first round of tax filings with this new CPA. And we had a couple of phone meetings going over the returns, going over questions on some of the forms, going over the numbers. And at the end, he said, I have never had a new client that was as thorough (laughs) as you were. That was fun, he said. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm glad it was fun for you. I was not having fun. I do not have fun reading through 90 pages of tax returns and trying to make myself read every line to make sure I know what's going on there. But recognizing that somebody who doesn't have that tenacity has some other strength 
that is incredibly valuable to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And that I need, they have something I don't have. And it's not just like, well, I've got the total package and they just have the same things I have, but less of them. Right. They've got other things I don't have at all. Yeah. I think and if great. those things can fill up their tank and energize them and excite them and fulfill them. Yeah. Unbelievable. They're hired. Hey, let's move on to this colorful wheel you got. What is this? Okay. So we have on my podcasting desk, we have one of these spin for a prize wheels and it is the ran out of topics wheel. So anytime in our podcast that we run out of things to talk about, we end up sort of at a loss or anytime we feel like it just for fun, we can spin the wheel and it has a whole bunch of topics, anything from HR stuff, software, business finance, shop equipment, cheap tricks, customer service highs, customer service lows, books you're reading, latest lean improvements, favorite tools, and then one of my favorites, bad business idea of the day. And the bad business idea of the day is you've got to like reach into your hat, pull out a rabbit, and the rabbit is a 30-second elevator pitch for a terrible idea. It could be funny, it could be serious, but it's just like, hey, here's a really awful business idea. Well, I don't feel we're out of topics right now, but not I at all. Spin we can... it just for fun. Can we do that? Okay. As a yeah, let's inaugural click. All right, we ended up on customer service highs. Ooh. What's a recent customer service high? Dang. Mm. I actually keep a file of these. Okay. With our YouTube channel, we humbly, I will say that we, at least it's a goal. So I will say we humbly move the manufacturing community forward. That's one of the goals of our channels. And so, you know, I'll get nice notes every now and then. If someone places an order online, they sometimes do like nice comments in the order. But one in particular stands out. It was this guy that said, Hey, Jay, I just want to thank you for all the videos you put out. He's a local delivery driver. And I have done that for almost 20 years, but then I got into custom knife making and he bought the classic story, Tormach. He was making one at a time, vice type approach. I think he bundled up like maybe eight or 10 and went to a local knife show and sold them for like six or 700 bucks a pop. He said his number one thing was that he had people wanting to buy more of his knives and he had a website and everything. And he wrote in there, he said, I watched your videos. I saved up enough money and I bought your pro pallet system and put it on my Tormach 1100. Every morning I wake up an hour before I have to hit the road. I load up a pallet of left and right handles, and then I prep another pallet of blades. I start it at lunch. My wife goes in and changes the pallet and presses the green button. That's all she knows. And then when I come home, I unload, reload, and a run of knife handles and blades runs throughout the night, including dinner. Because of this, your products have led to bringing in $55,000 of additional income to my family where my wife can finally stay at home and raise our three kids. That is outstanding. That, I was in tears. Like I'm trying not to cry right now too. I'm going to (laughs) be honest, but yeah, it was incredible where you go, okay, that's why I've always said like someone exchanging their hard-earned money driving for our pallet system, that is a sacred exchange from a customer service standpoint. 
I owe it to my customers to deliver high quality products. And man, I will go to my grave remembering that one because if he yeah. repeats that for the next 10 years, that's over a half million dollars that he has to either educate his kids or level up in life or finally take his wife on a vacation. It's all those types of things. And yep. in just our products have changed the trajectory of his life. I don't know if I can top that. If we spin it again, I'll make sure to have another one ready to go though. So yeah. I tried to save up customer service highs because of the kind of industry that we're in. When, when we're making accessories for life-saving tools, mm. firearms, medical devices, tourniquets and things. I remember years ago, the first time I heard a report that a, I believe it was a Pennsylvania state trooper who was carrying one of our tourniquet carriers saved the dude's life at a car crash scene. Wow. And realizing that a thing that we made enabled somebody to have the tools at their fingertips that they needed to save a life yeah. right then is extraordinary. That's powerful. It's not that common for a company our size that you hear about a customer of yours using their firearm to defend their life. Mm -hmm. Even if those things do happen, and they do happen, it often doesn't get all the way back to you as the holster maker. Yeah. But recognizing that when we do our job, we make people safer because their gear is reliable. They're not, I mean, firearms are dangerous. If you carry a firearm, it is a dangerous object not to be handled lightly, mm -hmm. which is why you never take a loaded gun and throw it in a purse or drop it in a gym bag or leave it in the glove box of your car because it is such a powerful tool and therefore a dangerous object. But one of the things that I reiterate to my staff over and over is we are building tools to allow people to live the life they want without owning or carrying a firearm, interfering with everything else that they want to do. Mm. They should be able to wear the clothes they wear and engage in the activities they like to engage in. They should be able to hike and horse ride and mountain bike and do whatever else they want and have our gear securely and comfortably hold onto their firearms so they do not have to worry about it. They're never going to lose it. It'll be there if they ever need it. And we contribute to people being able to live the life that they want. And so it really is about building products that are enabling our customers to live their life. We're not trying to change their life or steer their life or conform their life to what we think it should be like. We want to take away the friction of other less comfortable, less effective, less secure methods of carrying a firearm that lots of people have tried and they're like, well, yeah, I can carry in this other holster, but I have to wear like a triple XL shirt to conceal this. And I just, I don't want to do it. It just it feels terrible. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things, we have a lot of those minor impacts that are ongoing on a lot of customers' lives. Mm -hmm. And every time we hear back from anybody about that, I love showing my employees photos of our customers in our morning meeting because we're part of a pretty large Facebook group that has a lot of our customers in it. And anytime they post pictures like, hey, here I am at, at the beach. I'm in board shorts. I've got a t-shirt on. I'm with my wife and our two kids. The kids are playing and making sandcastles. My wife's reading a book. I'm wandering around, keeping an eye on everybody, but I'm able to wear my firearm. It's comfortable. It's very well concealed. It's completely secure. I know it's going to stay with me and I'm living my life. That is so rewarding to see because when I started carrying a gun almost 15 years ago, it really interfered with my life. I had to change the way that I dressed and it was just 
it really wasn't friction free. It mm -hmm. was highly frictionful. Yeah. And those bits of customer feedback really energize my team because they see people in, right. enjoying their life because the thing we made for them doesn't distract them or rob them of that joy. Yeah. No, that's huge. If I could underscore one approach that you just outlined, it's communicating the vision for the company. I use that customer service email to these guys. I refer to it often. Like, how does an employee, especially an entry-level employee, really stay motivated over a reasonable amount of time to produce at a high level in order to continue to push the business that they work for forward? And when I tell them, like, you are taking a guy that is working in his garage and you're putting his wife back into the home when you are allowing him to just generate income, you're making the world a better place, one person, one family at a time. Yep. It's probably an easier approach if we were, were making kind of like a different product, like yep. certainly a holster. Like, you know, I was watching your buddy, John Korea, Active Self-Protection, his YouTube channel. Yes. Very, it's a gnarly channel. It's a wake up call for most people. I can't watch it with my wife or anything like that. It's not date night material. But <laughs> for me, I remember one stood out and it seems like most of them are in Brazil where a guy could not unholster his weapon and he took the asphalt temperature challenge and the yep. bad guy won. And you're, are you a sponsor of the channel? I know he. Yes. So that's yeah, actually about the only advertising money we do spend is I've known John for a long time uh -huh. uh, and we have been a sponsor of his YouTube channel for years. Great. And the whole crew at ASP are good people. And yeah. the sobering reality of seeing somebody else win or lose their fight, and it's a fight for all the marbles, mm -hmm. that is a really shocking wake-up call to people who have never thought about that kind of thing before. Right. Absolutely. That's when it matters that you bought the Henry holster and not the Amazon holster. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Now. Lots and lots of people successfully use firearms to defend themselves with no holster at all. If you don't have this one piece of gear, you're going to be killed in the streets. Mm -hmm. Your chances of winning a fight, if you just have a firearm and have the determination to use it, are way, way, way better just by having that tool, mm -hmm. no matter how you're carrying it. Right. But I want every possible advantage. Mm -hmm. If you're not, if you're not, if you're not cheating, you should be cheating in every possible way. Yeah. If you could have any advantage, you want that advantage. There are no rules when it's a life and death situation. All spheres no, love and war. And that's there's war. no courtesy required. There's no he gets a turn, then I get a turn. Right. There's no I have to wait and make sure they understood what I said before I take a gun out. No. If it's life and death, it's yeah. game on. Yeah, that's good. Hey, spin it again. I like this. All right, let's hit it again. Bungat. Software. Oh. What have you messed with recently or really been enjoying as far as software? We've deployed Asana. Okay. So I'm part of this business owners group and the owners group, you need to do, there's a fee to be in it and the fee kind of excludes smaller companies. So it needs to be on okay. average through two, three, $4 million or more in revenue, or just be highly profitable. Like we have a software guy that is probably hovering around the million dollar mark, but software has no cogs. So there's lots of profit involved. Yep. And so one of the common denominators 
in everyone in the group is that we all get driven nuts by this generalized software like QuickBooks, you know, like an ERP system that you know you're paying for 50, 60, 70% that you're not going to use, but you really need it for like that 10, 20, 30%. So for us, I took a poll. I said, who is using or who has this need? Okay, what software are you using? And then I went to some colleagues around the industry and Asana kind of seemed to be a very common one. There's another I'm going to look into, but it, it escapes me right now that my video producer is moving over into. But it's finally like if you've used Trello, which uses a card approach, Yep, it's like an old school, like three by five card, which is Trello. And then yep. you can have lists and assign people, but Asana takes it up a notch so that you can get different viewpoints. So me as the owner, I can get the big picture, the overall, my operations guy can look at the Gantt chart function to mm -hmm. see what needs to come next. Some of the guys on the machine, they can be assigned a card and there's all the relevant info. So I feel like for the first time in my business career, here's a generalized software that checks almost every single box. Now, the one thing that it didn't really check was our use of our, what are called Pearson boards, yep. which are really just a, they're literal boards, like two foot by three foot pieces of galvanized metal that we've printed. It's essentially like construction paper, large format. I don't know what the size is. Yep. And then it has on the Y axis. Up and down on the left, it would be every component we make. And on the x-axis at the top, each one of the steps it goes through, like low stock, need to order material, saw, op one, two, three, four, finishing. The goal is to work left to right. There's plenty of videos you know, on our channel about that. Yep. But we had to build that software because when we moved into our current facility, which is almost double the size of our last one, there was mm -hmm. too much wasted motion of guys walking over to the board to look at it and then walk back. Now we've digitized it where I can check it from home. I can check it in the morning at night, yep. see what the guys are doing at their 5.45 a.m. meeting. I can see, oh, okay, this is their goals for today. So do you guys have more than one morning meeting? Okay, so they always have a what we call a board meeting. I would not categorize that as a morning meeting. It's okay. just like, hey, what did we get done yesterday? What pins get moved if they haven't yet been moved? What machines are opening or closing? Look good? Great. That's probably a 10-minute meeting. No, gotcha. it's 10 minutes. It's 10 minutes of my operations guy walking around, pulling the company, and then he'll pull a few guys together, and then he would tell them what he updated on the board. Now it's all digital, which is nice. Gotcha. It just happens. So, And then the secondary morning meeting for that's all teams. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, software, Asana, that's our go-to. I don't know if we'll stick to it. So far, it checks all the boxes. It gives a high-level view. It gives the nitty-gritty view. You don't use Asana, right? We do use Asana. Oh, you do? Okay. Uh, good. We have a Tuesday morning, 9 a.m., what I call an admin meeting, which is myself and my operations manager and my production manager sit down, usually for an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, and go over all the larger time cycle things that are not daily production stuff that we need to keep the ball rolling on. And that can be future HR goals. It can be plans to reorganize some area of the shop. Anything that's not something we're going to cover with the team in the morning meeting because it's actionable today. We keep all those projects in Asana. And we actually, when we did our big change to doing all this new pick, pack, and ship fulfillment stuff, starting in the late summer, early fall last year, we were using the timeline view on Asana a lot because there were a lot of moving parts. We had to 
write some new job descriptions, advertise open positions, interview some people, make a few hires, train those people. But we also had to do a whole bunch of stuff in terms of rearranging the shop and getting new inventory racking and building new shipping stations and getting scales and cameras and all the stuff we needed to build out that whole shipping area. And we could estimate how much time each of those chunks would need and then put them on a timeline and then put the deliverable dates for each of those chunks on the calendar and then view the whole thing as a timeline. And that Mm. was enormously helpful for me to keep a view on the whole thing and how far we had progressed through the process, but also to share that information with our client whose fulfillment work we were insourcing so that they could see our plan for -hmm. executing that transition and not just have me say, oh yeah, we'll take care of everything. Just trust us. It's totally different when you can look at a timeline that runs October 1 through March 1st. And these are all the points on that line. This is going to be done by this date. That's going to be done by this date. This is going to be tested and operational by this date. And then as long as you stay on track, that is incredibly valuable. And even if you need to shift something like, oh, we were waiting for this piece to come in. We actually had a custom shipping bench built for us. And I forget the company that did it because I didn't do any of the purchasing for that. One of my employees was familiar with that company, spec'd out a bench, showed me the quote, said, this is what I want to get. These are the features it had. Are we good to go? I'm like, yep, order it. But it had to be assembled to order. And that took a few weeks longer than we expected. And so anytime one of those things happens, you move it and any dependent things after it in the timeline automatically shift. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I just moved Mm -hmm. an expected delivery date on my Google calendar, the dependent things related to it that have to wait till it's there for them to start, those wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't update. Yeah. So that is, I that like is that so about Asana. Yeah. That has been probably the most important thing because like we're prototyping right now, we're going to launch five new products by the end of the year. Nice. And it is so important to have that timeline because if you machine things out of order, you're like, oh, wait, why did we do that? No, now we can't test the fitment or, you know, or no, that is a $200 product. You need to be working on the $2,000 product. Let's prioritize that. So no, that is so huge. I probably don't use the timeline as much as I should. Why? Because I'm not good at tenacity. It all comes back (laughs) to that. The only thing that I don't particularly like about Asana is I find the interface to be kind of busy and it's easy to accidentally click on things that I don't intend to. There's just a lot of clickable stuff on the screen. And sometimes that means I blunder into things that I'm not meaning to modify mm-hmm. or I'll accidentally click on something and then a pop-up opens or a little drop down shows up. And I'm like, no, 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 uh, uh, go back, go back, right. unwind. Yeah. yeah. So on a desktop, I, I drug a card and I dropped it somewhere. I'm like, I accidentally bumped my mouse and it clicked and dragged a card. What did I just move? <laughs> Where did it go? Vanished that sucks because I know I threw off someone's work day, you know? So yeah, no, I hear you on that. That's good. My favorite so, recent piece of software is we actually had a small custom piece of software written from scratch for us by a friend of mine who's a developer here locally in Indiana in order to streamline our actual packing station for orders. Yes. And what I'd wanted to do, I saw years ago, a shop tour video from a 3D printer component manufacturing company in, I believe in the UK. But they were building like hot nozzles and other parts and selling them to other 3D printer manufacturers. 
And the guy who was giving the tour was showing their shipping area and how everything is in scannable bins. And then at their weigh scale and package station, they actually had an overhead camera facing down at the counter and there was a taped off zone, a target, and you would put your packing bin with all the product in it in that spot and then capture a high-res photo of it. And then they would attach that to the tracking confirmation email that went out to the customer. So the customer would get their shipping notification with a tracking link in it and a high-res photo of exactly what went into their package. Not a photo of the closed up box, but a photo of the items in the pick bin prior to final packing. Mm-hmm. And I saw that and go, that's a great idea. It can be automated. It doesn't add time to our process. It gives an impressive extra level of transparency to the customer. The same way when it started to come standard that Amazon drivers drop off your package and take a photograph yeah. of where they put it. Mm-hmm. Like a number of times when we moved to our new house last year, and Amazon didn't quite know where we were yet. They delivered packages to the clearly under construction and not yet occupied house across mm-hmm. the street from us. Okay. Like it, nobody lives there. It doesn't have doors yet. Right. And we'd say, I'd get an email. It's like, oh, Amazon got delivered. Great. And I look at the picture. I'm like, it's sitting on a pile of lumber and bags of concrete mix. That's probably across the street in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> and then geez. I'd go across the street and find my package just sitting there in this garage full of construction supplies, that transparency, it's low cost to us, but it's an incredible value to the customer. Mm-hmm. And we, a number of times we've had customers get that email, see the picture that we send them because we've integrated that into our process, see the picture and go, oh, I messed up. I ordered the wrong thing or I forgot to order something. There was supposed to be an extra one of these in that package, but I checked my order and, and I realized I only ordered one. I meant to order two. Can you guys still catch my shipment and adjust it? Mm-hmm. And so our ability to quickly make little shipping adjustments is enhanced by the customers actually seeing what goes in their package. So this yeah. custom software we had written lays over top of ShipStation and it integrates a live feed from an overhead camera, the real-time weight from a USB connected scale onto a touchscreen monitor. And then we have a big custom programmed mechanical button that triggers all those things at once. So you scan a packing slip, lay it on the scale so that we did it a little differently from that video I saw years ago because they had a camera area and then they'd put the stuff on the scale and then print the label. Mm. I wanted to do those all together. So the scale is our target area. You put all the product on the scale. It's directly under the camera. As soon as the scale settles and the weight stops changing, you hit the big green button and it snaps the weight, buys the label, sends it to the label printer, captures the overhead camera shot, attaches it to the customer email, and then sends the email with the tracking information and the photo. So and awesome. when we were first doing it, we initially thought, okay, well, we'll upload these images to a directory and we will include a link because it'll be way faster to not attach the photo because the photo is going to be megabytes every shipping email. But I realized that unless the customer sees the image in their email, that a significant portion of them are not going to click on some other link to go see the picture. Mm-hmm. And it also gave us the added accountability of we send the customer an actual image, not a link to an image that we host and could conceivably edit, change, or delete later. When we've emailed them a copy of the image, it's their copy. It's in their inbox. It's on their device. We can't take it back. Mm-hmm. So if we mess something up, 
if we didn't pack their order correctly and it's shown in that image, we can't ever cover that up because they've got a copy of it. Sure. I like that. But our shipping workflow has been so much improved in the past few months that in the past, I don't want to boast, in the past 7,500 packages, we've had single digits of mispacks. It's amazing. And that was an unimaginable rate for us a year ago. We weren't even close to that. We had shipping defects often because there were all these manual spots in the process that were just like the analogy I use with my team is like, this is an open manhole cover in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a hazard. People just wander along and they fall into this. We've got a problem in this process and you can easily avoid it if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. The instant you're not paying attention, you fall right in. Yeah. Wow. And so we went and patched a lot of those holes and the result has been we're able to ship more stuff every day with much less stress. The customers get more information. They're getting their shipping notifications sooner because we've taken a lot of steps out of the process. We're combined and automated a bunch of the steps. Yeah. And our accuracy rate has gone through the roof, which is so gratifying because mm. it's always discouraging to have a person who's excited about your product. They give you their money. You ship them an order. They're excited about it. They're waiting for it. It arrives and it's wrong. Yeah, gosh. I bought a guitar That's, pedal recently and it was correct, but the local FedEx hub, they're horrific. It shipped from Westlake, which I could probably, well, I could hike over a mountain range and be in Westlake in about half an hour. It's that close. They shipped it to standard ground. It went to Virginia and then back to California. And this is a guitar pedal. This is like my hobby, like my passion my weekend wars that I, that I engage yeah. in, it was soul crushing to go, oh my gosh, I'm going to order it on Thursday. I'll have it tomorrow on Friday. I get to play all weekend where I had to no, wait wrong. so long. It was <laughs> such a bad experience and you, you can't blame anyone, but FedEx, the company that sold it, Strymon, yep. they did a perfect job. I placed the order, got a tracking number within an hour. It was a lot like the Pearson work holding experience. But it was like this thing that was such an emotional letdown, a total roller coaster. And so I hate out of curiosity, that. which time product was it? I'm a big fan of El Capitan, the Flint, the Big Sky, okay. and the Timeline. Which one did you get? The Cloudburst. Ooh. It is freaking amazing, Andrew. You just need to buy a, a Cloudburst pedal. So I, I don't <laughs> need to because I have a Kemper now. And so, oh my gosh, now you're speaking my language. Yeah, I justify Kemper for as a bass player. That's my problem. Yeah. So the biggest thing for me is the ability to save complete performances. It, there is a steep learning curve with the Kemper. And I, for a lot of years was a small two bam combo junkie. Okay. And I bought and sold a lot of gear. Yeah. And I was always hunting for that perfect, chimey, thick 3d, but not very fuzzy or overdriven classic Fender blackface tone. And there were a few amps that I'd played that I couldn't afford when I was in college that just yeah. in my mind had this sound that I really, really wanted to recapture. Yeah, yeah. And I never got it. I tried a bunch of blackface clones. I tried some Fargins. I tried a bunch of modern Fender stuff. And then I tried Bad Cat and a few other more English style, mm-hmm. British style circuits. And I just couldn't get the tone that I had in my head. Mm. And I play at church primarily, which means I have to play whatever style, whatever songs yes. are up that Sunday. I'm not, not picking my own set basically artists. ever. And the genres yeah. do change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the ability to say, okay, I'm going to have 
30 or 40 common presets. I've got some Marshall style crunch. I've got mm -hmm. some cleans with tremolo. I've got some really long ambient reverbs. I've got multiple delays programmed into that I can switch on and off. Mm -hmm. To have those as preset sounds, because I was an all point-to-point hand-wired pedal board using analog effects before that. And it just you just end up chasing your tail all the time. And if you ever capture a sound that's amazing, yeah, the next week, you have to erase that sound by yeah. moving the knobs someplace else to do some other genre. And then you never quite get it back. Yeah, exactly. And so I like the Kemper, but it was a pain to figure out how to program it and set it initially. The number of times where like, I didn't quite click save in the right place uh -huh. and then toggle the screen and toggle back and everything I'd just spent half an hour uh -huh. tweaking was all gone. So that happened so a number of times. You're, you're making your own profiles. You're not buying them. So I am buying profiles, but I'm building my own stomp box stacks and oh, tweaking those yeah. effects. Got and it. And so got it. you can turn the gain up and down. You can mess with presence in EQ. You can set the order of stomp boxes. You can set how they stack, what their boosts and gains are, all these different things and build whole sounds. Yeah. It is really neat on the Kemper to have bank switching up and down and then have channels within banks, obviously like a normal multi-effects pedal. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of the songs we do, if I've got an intro ambient sound, and then I've got kind of a ping pong delay sound for a verse, and then add some crunch for the chorus, and then back to the verse sound, and then I've got a little solo into the bridge. Each one of those is just one touch, and it changes the drive signature, it changes the delay settings, it changes the reverb settings. You can have all those ganged together, where on my old pedal board, there are always songs where like, okay, at the end of this chorus, I've got two beats to turn off the tremolo, turn on the delay, turn on the reverb, turn on the gain and the boost and get the first note of my solo in. And you just look like an idiot on stage, like trying to tap six pedals in a half second. And you almost always mess it up. You just, you shank the front end of your solo because you were tap dancing on your pedal board. Yeah, so it's been really nice to have the ability. It takes extra time up front to get it set up, yeah. but for playing live at church, it's been phenomenal. So do you have the original, like the toaster one or the, what is it called the stage? So I've got the power rack, which is, oh, it's okay. basically it's the rack mountable version of the toaster. Like I don't like have the stage. Yeah. 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 I wanted to put a power conditioner in. So I've got a Furman power conditioner in the rack as well. Uh -huh. And our church is also the building that hosts my kid's school. And the gym that we worship in is a gym during uh, the week. Yeah. And I leave my gear there on stage. And in the past, that always meant I was putting covers on my amps and unplugging cables from the front. So if I got bashed with a basketball, it wouldn't wreck the input jack on my amp. Right. With the Kemper, I just unplug all the cables, throw the covers on the rack mount front and back, and it's fine. I just leave I it there. I love that. Dude, funny story, and maybe we'll wrap after this, but at my church, all the guitarists migrated over to Kempers. Yep. This was right after the facilities guy at the church built a beautiful amp isolation room. So that each of, of them could talk. And, and he's like, <laughs> I spent all that time and church money. And now you guys are going to Kemper's because they actually went back and to make them feel better, they added profiles of the amps in the room and said, okay, it was worth it because now we've recorded that. Thank you very much. We're taking our marshals and our oranges and all that stuff back home. Yep. Now we've it's captured just, those beautiful tones. Yes. And now we just keep our guitar cases in there <laughs> during the weekend. So oh, I, I do do not miss, I mean, the Kemper's a little bit, it's not terribly bulky. I do not miss hauling around heavy tube amps. 
man, hauling around amps just yeah. sucks. So what I did is I've got a small bad cat combo amp and I took that home. Mm. So the Kemper stays at church and my bad cat lives at home and I keep my Fender Jazzmaster at home. Uh-huh. I've got a couple pedals at home run with nine volts, no pedal board, nothing crazy. And it's just fun because my sons are learning electric guitar and bass right now and they just love the jam. And I never used to have an amp at home because my main amp was always at church. And by getting the Kemper, my nice tube amp is now an at-home practice amp and I can actually practice at home yeah. with it, which is at the right totally, volumes. totally novel. Now, doesn't have a headphone jack and that is one of the coolest things about the Kemper is you can get pretty good analogous tone. Mm-hmm. I am running my Kemper, since we're not using in-ear monitors, I'm running my Kemper through a Kemper 1x12 cab with their Kemper Cone full range response speaker mm-hmm. in it. But we are XLR direct out of the head into the PA. Yeah. So we don't have to mess around with positioning a mic in front of the speaker cone anymore. That's nice. In a church with volunteer sound guys, they do a great job, but we don't really have professional audio people mm-hmm. manning our soundboard usually. And so being able to say, I'm just going to plug in direct is really nice. Yeah. It's really easy. Just click it in. I'm on this and this channel, adjust the gain and we're off to the races. Exactly. Yeah. From a lean standpoint, Kempers are the way to go for places of worship. Oh yeah. The ability to just literally, and the stage version, which is all encapsulated in a single multi-effect pedal board, where you can literally just walk in with that in a soft shell case, lay it down, plug in, plug out, and then you're completely done. All your sounds and everything are right there, your toe tips. That is extraordinary. And in a lot of cases, the amps that I really like, they don't sound good until they're at volumes that already are a problem in a worship oh, yeah. space. Yeah. This one a big boomy gymnasium. Like I could not put an orange amp in there and crank it until it sounds like for a while I had, I borrowed a hundred watt, high watt Jimmy Page signature head with a 212 cab when everybody else was out of the room and I was in that building alone by myself at night. And I turned that amp up and put a fuzz pedal in front of it. I got unbelievable David Gilmore, Pink Floyd sounds yeah. out of that high watt with a fuzz. Yeah. They were ear splittingly loud. Yeah. Completely, completely unusable in any kind of context where there'd actually be people in the room. Super fun. Yeah. Totally impractical. Yeah. And after a while, I'm like, man, this is like a really, really nice amp. A friend of mine just let me use it for a few months. I'm like, but I'm literally putting this Ferrari in first gear and then driving it around the block without ever letting the clutch all the way out. Totally. This is just not, this is not right. I should the not first, be doing this. The, the first band I played in was the guitarist had a Marshall JCM 900 head with the uh-huh. cabinet and it sounded so good cranked. And then all the junky little bars that we would play back in the day, they'd be like, Hey man, you got to turn that thing down. We're like, what the heck? Well, it wasn't until we went in to, to cut our first album that the guy's like, yeah, bring it in. Yeah. Every, they're all a little bit different. Bring it in. And he plugged it into this thing called a Marshall power break, which basically allows you to crank it, but not wreck your hearing for the rest of your life. I'm like, oh, that that's now I get it. Now I get it. That's a good idea. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, I get it. Having the ability to dial the tone I want and adjust the volume largely independently with the temper is extraordinary to get really nice crunchy sounds at very quiet volumes. And if I want a really big, wide, clean, uh-huh. I can just turn it up. There you go. It's amazing. Yeah. And it doesn't suddenly get crunchy. It just yeah. is clean and louder. Yeah. Anyway, 
Kemper. Yeah, we should have an audio episode where we talk about favorite effects pedals, coolest rigs we've had. You could talk about your Padula bass and I can talk about other cool things that I've played and all kinds of neat stuff. Yeah. And I did get a new bass recently. So what'd you get? I got a 35th anniversary Music Man Stingray 5. Nice. Because I'm a I just recently guy. had my eye on the Fender Custom, sh- well, not Fender Custom Shop, but Fender Signature Series Mono Neon Bass. Have you seen that one? No. It is uh-uh. freaky yellow with an orange pickguard, gold okay. hardware, which is not my thing. I'm a silver hardware kind of guy. I like chrome. Yeah. But it is a, an atrociously 80s neon five-string Fender Jazz Bass. And that it just looks, though, right? it looks fun. Yeah, yeah. It's loud. And I know if I got that bass, I would have tons of fun with it. And our worship leader would probably tell me not to play it at church <laughs> because it would just be too distracting. Yeah. It'd just be a little too much. Too Visually much distracting. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's a nice, but it's fun. You can look it up, but it's a nice earthy wood tones and it, it does have this like nice trim and it plays like a dream. So it's pricey, but it's like that law of diminishing returns. My first bass, which is a Fender P bass, the Mexican P bass, was probably yep. 150 bucks. My next one was an yep. Ibanez, which is maybe 250 bucks. Yep. That $100 jump was night and day. But then, as you like the difference between my 2010 Stingray 5 HH to this Stingray 5 35th model, it's literally double the price. But an undiscerning bass player would not be able to tell them apart. But when you play a bass for my last bass for over 12 years, I know the dead spots. I know the bunk frets. I know that when the intonation is out in certain spots, that type of thing. I know yep. what tone, the switches. This is like, oh my gosh, all those problems just disappeared. The sad part is I have not yet discovered all the hidden flaws of this current bass, but I soon will. And yep. that's just the name of it. You upgrade, you spend double the money, you get about 10% of the return on that. But I am loving it. It looks good, sounds good, plays like a dream. That is really fun. And there is no perfect piece of gear because our tastes change. Mm-hmm. Like the sounds I really liked when I was first learning electric guitar are still fun. Yeah. But they're not the sounds that really captivate me now. And I have always been more interested in like the texture of sound. Like I have no interest in shred and uh-huh. sweeping arpeggios and like Ingve Malmsteen can drop off the face of the earth for all I care. I wouldn't miss a note he'd ever played. Yeah. But really like chewy 3D textury tones, a lot of cleans, a lot of tremolo, really mm-hmm. subtle sort of atmospheric delays. Yeah. yeah ambient, that kind yes. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Endlessly fascinating. It's like seeing a high resolution, you really zoom in and you see the texture mm-hmm. of a really fine piece of fabric or the grain of wood. And like every time you zoom in, there's more detail. Mm-hmm. I like sounds that are like that rather than just the 1990s Digitech orange pedal where you step on and it's like, <laughs> just my yeah. guitar sounds like a wall of static. It's awesome. Right. <laughs> so good. Well, you know what? Oh. That actually fits like the today's worship genre, that atmospheric textured approach so that's certainly what our worship leaders ask us to play play ambient play atmospheric we're not here to show off especially from the point of a bass player really should be in the background holding down a firm foundation Ooh, that's the name of a song firm foundation and then of which everything else is built on so it's not the most exciting music it's actually quite objectively like bad music (laughs) i'll be the first to admit that but it serves a different purpose so 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that ambient type stuff. That's why I have a Strymon Cloudburst pedal on my bass bass. pedal board. Yeah. It barely (laughs) works. It barely works, but it makes a killer reverb pedal at the least. That's super fun. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up there. Anything else you want to say at the end? Go innovate your production. How about that? Yeah. Okay. I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of innovating my production. That sounds good. Let's do that. All right. Have a great night, Jay. All right. You too. Bye.